This is our Suburb Trends report for May 2023, and we'll be looking at what property investors need to know when they're looking at investing across the country. And in this episode, we'll be discussing how to solve the rental crisis, a big ask indeed. Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent and buyer's agent mentor, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, author of Auction Ready and co-host of Your First Home Buyer Guide. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker, recently ranked number five in Australia out of over 18,000 brokers in the annual MPA Top 100 Mortgage Broker Award. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of an appropriate and experienced professional. This month, we've asked Kent to do what looks increasingly impossible, and that is to solve the rental crisis. Slightly tongue-in-cheek there, but we know that he's been doing quite a bit of research in this area of late. So, Kent, we know that you grabbed this uh, this challenge i guess with both hands can you tell us kicks off briefly by explaining how you tackled it yeah the the biggie is i've been looking at pipeline supply so forget all the other policies just focused entirely on building approvals uh, one of the call outs with building approvals is not all of them get to completion so looking at building approvals and then looking at the expected volume or proportion of those building approvals that will make it through to becoming a rental how do we do that? Using rental tenure, which is the percentage of properties that are already rentals in that market. So taking building approvals over a certain time period, be it a year, be it two years, whatever it might be, looking at that volume and then applying a percentage, which is the rental tenure, and then looking at that count and comparing that to the existing rental stock. And you see the uplift. Now, what I'm looking for is an uplift in new rental stock or rental volume that exceeds population growth. Good luck. It is not happening. And that's that's really the number. And and it's not happening anywhere. anywhere. It's really not happening anywhere. Uh yeah, broad broad statement. But you know, if you've got if you look out at the population growth, typically one point three percent per annum, we're not there. Um so so then what I started to do is to pull out markets where it's worse. And then def- you, it depends on how you define that. And what I've been looking at doing is looking at any market that is below 1%. Now, the ones that actually bubbled to the top are probably got one third of the required volume. So s- much lower than expected. But we've got areas where uh, all the stars are aligned against renters. You've got significantly, probably about one third of the volume needed. You've got rents in excess of 30%, so unaffordable rents, and you've got vacancy rates below 1%. It's very, very easy to find and create large lists of suburbs that meet that criteria now. And it only gets worse. So we called it out years ago. Remember we said, we've got a crisis here. And the, the solution to it is massive and immediate increase in supply, i.e. emergency housing accommodation. I think you scoffed at me when I said Nissan huts. We're at that point. It is that bad. Ah, dear. I did see something on LinkedIn about these houses that have been, or dwellings that have been built in two days or something as uh, emergency accommodations, I think in a flood zone. That's exactly what we need. All right, so... So we just wrap this up there now and go, right, off. <laughs> go and build some. Well, look, yeah, then we can drill in and start to look at the area. So so effectively, um, if you look at the ABS data, I've started to play around with the SA2 for this case, so we can get a little bit narrower. Um, and the areas that have dominated, I've created a top 10 list. Now, how have I done it? I've, I've looked at uh, total of existing dwellings. Um, then I've looked at uh, what the rental tenure is in some of these areas. And typically, most of the areas that are that I've looked at that I've created a top ten list, we're looking at an average of about thirty one percent. So it's it's on par with the national average, right? Normal rental tenure. Um, then uh, I've looked at pipeline supply. This is the interesting bit um, across the. I'm just looking. I'm just scanning across the top ten now. The expected total is only two hundred and thirty seven extra rentals in the top ten areas. Um, it's just so weak. It's just so poor. So in terms of percentage, and we'll talk about the areas in a minute, we'll stay in the numbers. 
Um, we're really only talking at a, of an uplift in rentals in these top 10 areas of less than half a percent. Less than half a percent. So their vacancy, you know, so and their vacancy rates are currently below 1%. So really, really awful. I've got a Skype thing beaming there, so I'm going to quit that so it doesn't beep at me. Um, and, and we're talking at rental affordability just in terms of units here. Uh, rental, the average is 45% of household income. So really diabolical numbers here. Now, what are these areas? Um, Coombaba, uh, Gold Coast North. Um, so in the Gold Coast, the next one is Ballina, number two. I think we all know Ballina. I can even pronounce Ballina. Uh, Labrador, Runaway Bay, Bigger Waters. So again, all of this is Gold Coast North. Tweed Heads, uh, the only one in the top 10 uh, outside of uh, New South Wales and Queensland is uh, Mandurah. Um, so you know that one quite well. Benora Point, Kalula as well. That rounds up. What are we up to there? How many have I mentioned? That's nine. The last one in it was Carrara, which is um, Gold Coast in, in and around that Narang pocket. So you can probably see there the top 10 are all based around that um, southeast Queensland pocket around Gold Coast. It's a it's a big problem, not enough supply. This is a bit weird, right? Because, you know, we've, there's been all this talk about the growth corridor and, and we may now look like we should have egg on our faces because we've been going, oh, don't be buying investment properties in growth corridors because all that is about development isn't actually about capital growth. But basically, this this is an area that a lot of investors have piled into and not made any money for a long time. And now we say that there's a chronic shortage. What? It's, Where, it's where's the mismatch? What's happened? Yeah, look, I think the the big driver of this is that you've had population growth in that area since the COVID exodus that was above the national average, so abnormal supply. Uh, then what you've got on top of that exacerbating this is the um, collapse of so many builders, developers, um, so when you factor in interest rates going up, uh, you know, less investors going in, less developers going in, uh, less money flowing through, you can see the pipeline supply issue and that's, that's up against uh, population growth in that corridor. So yes, it's a growth corridor, but it's uh, you know, growth one way, which is population, but not enough housing stock to keep up. Can you see here, Kent, anywhere that there's been a retreat of investors, like rental stock in terms of is starting to decrease, you know, because a lot of investors have run for the hills in the last few years, you know, 2021, 2022, when they could get out and take their money. There there have been a few pockets. Uh, I haven't done the analysis for today, but the, I did this a few months ago where I looked at, um, and I could take a quick, I could scramble quickly and do it on the screen, but that wouldn't make for a good podcast. Um, the what I do is I look at current listings that are ex-rentals and in most cases every time I approach this I'm trying to find a headline I'm trying to find an abundance of ex-rentals to create that headline I don't find it I just don't find it so it's very rare for me to find every time I've done this analysis a significant proportion of ex-rentals suffice to to create that headline article uh, yes it, it, it happens on occasion uh, the last time it was in a significant cluster it was in and around manly would you believe so i think it was more people just cashing in on the boom but these areas um especially this pocket I, when i was doing i do a lot of those yield type reports where you focus on individual properties where you're getting that seven and a half percent or more yield which is worth reporting on Tweed heads and a lot of the Gold Coast, those villas and townhomes just always seem to be these big, big high yield properties. So I think a lot of investors did flow into those property types um, and, and find those rather attractive. Um, and, and I think that they would get reasonable capital growth because a lot of these properties are kind of that hybrid. They're, they're, they're one or two story, very small blocks. And pretty cheap to buy, and there's just no other options for you. So now, yeah, you know, there's not a lot of cheap property around anymore. 
So, so Kat, this is while we're picking on the top 10, this isn't just the top 10, right? I think the national vacancy rate's under 1% or something. Isn't it crazy? It's It is. So I'm, now I've done this at an SA2 level. It's horrible. So I'm just going to do a, a mean average here just on the spreadsheet. Um, so it's it's giving me a mean average or median um, of under 1%. So it's 0.9 across the average SA2. Now, you know, an SA2 is probably an easy way. It's, it's suburb-centric. Um, so that's quite, quite sad. Now, if I, what I can do is I'll, I'll, I'll sort that, and you've got how many... Let's look, look at how many areas are under one. Um, yeah, there's yeah, there's there's an abundance of them. Um, there's at least 60 of these SA2s that I'm analysing here. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty bad. And just to put that into context, under, I mean, you need, there's always needs to be a little bit of a vacancy rate because you've got churn, right? People yep. move out, people move in, in that yeah. intervening period, there's there's a vacancy rate. And I think that's, I think 1% is basically means you're just replacing yourself from memory. Um, so a functioning uh, property, you know, the rental side of things needs sort of about a 2 or 3% vacancy rate to be sort of in balance, right? Yeah. Now so anything I, under one is diabolical. I've, I've got a. I've opened up a different spreadsheet here to talk to because um, that list that I was just using then was very narrowed down on uh, the select uh, for our report. So I'm just going to zoom out to say a, a national level now, and I'll tell you what the uh, the vacancy rate is. So I've just looked at areas that have uh, at least um, ten listings on average. So they're significant rental markets. Okay. So looking at that, the sample size now is 916 in the uh, in the list of SA2s. Now, of that, of that, I'm just going to do that ascending now, and I'll tell you, of that, how many are under 1% out of that total? That is, oh my gosh, it is just huge. So we're looking at less than 1% of that sample, 254 SA2s. Uh, it's just, it's, it's, I've just never, I've never seen anything like this at all. So it's interesting. What's happening with uh, client conversations is is people who are potential first home buyers, right? They're, they're coming to us. They're thinking about and what's motivating them to buy is their leases are finishing and the rental insecurity and their rents are going up. And yeah, they want to get into the market, but they're, they're actually scared to get back into the rental market. You know, they're, they're seeing it's harder and harder, et cetera. And so I think that what the issue with this is that it's forcing people to have to buy, for example, um, because it's harder to rent, but not everyone can afford to buy, right? And so um, you're kind of creating this market where it's then the haves and haves nots. It's just going to keep on getting worse. And the people who can't afford to buy are also going to find it even harder to rent, right? And so is this is where we're just going to see a real social problem brewing, you know, maybe not now, but over the next couple of years where people are having to get displaced almost. Because if you're trying to rent in, say, that Gold Coast area, um, you're going to have to move, right? Because you're not going to be, you're going to be homeless if your tenants, if your lease finishes and you can't rent something else. Well, when I play around with the data, the only solution that I can come up with is um, the person's per dwelling. That's the only thing that solves this, you know? Um, so th to move the dial around, you crowd more people in to existing houses. That's the only option we've got. Um, as an immediate solution followed by these emergency accommodation because you can't just turn the dial right now. These are talk we're talking about building approvals, not not completions here. So this is pipeline stuff over the last couple of years, which is well and truly short. You know, so I'd probably say three hundred percent short in many of these areas that we're analysing. Um, so you're not going to turn that around within a one or two year period without emergency immediate accommodation. Um, so yeah, and and really the solution has to be multifaceted. So yeah, we're talking mentioning off off air before the the podcast recording was you built rent. Um, you know, it's a very mature market in the US where there's lots of tax incentives that are based on what you're renting it for. So if we look at the build a rent market here in Australia, it's very much focused on the premium premium end, the top end of town. Yeah, you know, there's not a lot of affordability. Whereas if you look at the what they call multifamily. Uh, in the US, the multifamily market is very mature, very structured, um, and a lot of tax incentives. So when you think about it, we've got lots of things that are a lot of lot of programs in place to help community housing groups, which is great. 
But that same, those same programs um, are much broader in the US where they support build-to-rent investors. And if you are renting below the market average, you get lots of tax incentives. So it's a massive market over there um, you know, with whole websites devoted to it. We need that. We need that level of sophistication where there's incentives for people to you know, do fractional investment in this stuff, to do full-blown investment, for Mara and Par investors to say, great, I want to build five units but keep them and uh, wow, I can do it for 10, 10% let under market rent, market value or 20% and there's tax, incentive, tax incentives suffice for, it, for me to maintain that. So at the moment though, what we've got is build to rent tackling the top end of town, really only focused on Melbourne City, et cetera, et cetera. They're not really affordable housing. Housing, you've got community housing groups doing a great job, but just not enough pipeline supply for them to to do anything. We turned the tap off in almost entirely on public housing 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and now we're panicking to try and turn it back on again. It, you know, it's been too, too little too late for the average renter. So, you know, what are the answers? Um, and they have to be immediate because it's this big. We've got, have we got something like a million empty dwellings in the country? Yeah, there's 10% of the, the dwelling stock is vacant. Well, I think when, when, when the, if you analyse that, I think it's vacant on the night of the census. So the question I've got, the question I've got is, I don't know how valid that measure is. You know, it, what, well, how many it, people were on holidays uh, that night? Yeah, it just weren't home. Hang on. We were in the middle of lockdown when the census was done. Yeah, yeah. Everyone should have been home. They should have been. They could have been out exercising within one kilometre of their house. <laughs> I think we would be or not answered the too. door. <laughs> I think your uh, flats, your combining um, people in households is probably what you'll see, right? That in other cities around the world, you know, a way place to live in London is to flat share, right? You can't afford to rent your own place. Any place to do it in New York would be similar, right? But our tax settings don't really encourage that, right? Because if you own your own home and you rent out a room, then not only do you pay tax on that rental income, but then you also make yourself liable for paying CGT on your capital gains. Um, so maybe, you know, some type of tax um, threshold that you can earn in rental income if you are, you know, providing a room to somebody. Um, a small change like that could happen and immediately because it could be, you know, from that tax year and that could actually you know, create more rooms available for people. Um, I mean, if we think for us to get someone from flatmate finders or roommates or, you know, that type of world on to see if they're seeing a lot of people starting to, you know, go, their portal use is going up because it makes sense, right? If rents are going up, you're starting to maybe get out of your one bedroom flat and maybe you go try to join a flat share where you save yourself a couple hundred bucks a week. So yeah, maybe that's one of part of the solution is we change the tax settings, um, for owner occupiers to rent out part of their place, you know, even if you want a granny flat on the back of your property, a lot of people think that's a great idea. But what you end up doing is, a, you usually destroy the value of your asset a lot of the time because you're no longer attractive to the the higher income owner occupier market who wants the backyard. But you don't get the CGT exemption, um, you know, uh, potentially if you cut the block up. So, yeah, I mean, that. What do you think of that, Ken? In terms of lobbying to change some tax rules? Yeah. I Oh, I think so. And, and it, that's an extension of what the sophisticated models that exist in the US for multifamily. So you need that those layers. I um I did a I went to my new best friend called ChatGPT and I asked it um what examples of government incentives are used to boost investment in multifamily uh residential properties. So the, I did this this morning and it came back with Governments around the world use a variety of incentives to boost investment in multifamily residential properties. Here are some examples. The first was tax incentives. So to your point, Chris, um, first off the bat was low-income housing tax credit, um, and that encourages investment in affordable, affordable housing. Uh, the next one was property tax abatements, um, temporary reduction in property taxes for qualifying properties. And then the third one, and I'll pause on that, is tax-exempt bond financing, low-interest loans for developers to provide through tax-exempt bond issuances. So straight off the bat, even ChatGPT, as young as it is, was smart enough to know it zeroed in on tax incentives straight up. 
you know, it was only a few months old and it's smarter than the rest of us combined. <laughs> you know, it's interesting though. I mean, now that we're, we're our mainland is completely um, labor dominated, um, I'm going to start sounding like a right wing person now. Um, <clears throat> our right, our labor, our left leftist governments tend to favor, um, you know, tightening up on tenancy protections. And I'm not for one minute saying tenants don't deserve protections. They don't, you know, they absolutely deserve safe, good housing, but also, you know, um, security and tenure as well. Like there's there's real problems in our system, right? So I've got to be careful how I tread here because I don't want to sound like a right-wing idiot. But the, the problem is, however, we've got quite a lot of um, – uh, I guess, legislation pose, which is going to make the situation for individual investors more onerous. And there is a little bit of, um, you know, I guess, fat cat bashing out there at the moment and very little sympathy, I guess, for the plight of the investor, the individual property investor. And yet, individual property investors have in this country been the ones supporting and providing the bulk of um, rental accommodation for a long time now. And that seems to be diminishing too, although am I just talking sentiment or am I talking fact here? I mean, are there, have, I mean, you did say earlier that you did look into, say, the Gold Coast um, is one of the contributing factors to a shortage, uh, you know, rental um, stock there because investors have been cashing out of the market. Is is that playing out anywhere in the country? Because, of course, 2021, there's a lot of anecdotal stories or, or commentary around people that have got out of underperforming assets at that time when they finally saw some growth. Yeah, certainly. Does that cause a problem? Docklands is a great example of that. You know, you have had a number of ex-rentals come on uh, there when people couldn't wait to get out because they've had a bad time. Now, you you want to focus on that case study is to say, okay, who who was worried about landlords in Docklands who've had a really rough three or four years? Um, So, you know... So I think we're going to be careful who we blame. We, we we want to lash out here, but I think we focus on solutions, not people to blame, because that just takes your eye off the ball. Um, so True, but the problem is that when you start talking about tax incentives to encourage more people to either open up their houses or to invest, that then brings out that same old argument, which is you don't want to be helping these people line their pockets and feather their own nests, you know what I mean? And it's like, okay, but do you want somewhere to live? You know, it, it's it's a tough one though, isn't it? Because philosophically and psychologically in this country, and also politically, um, there's quite a lot of division here. And it's like the same people that are crying that we've got this crisis. Um, at the same time, in many cases, I've read articles. I mean, I've I've listened to interviews. At the same time, they're saying, but landlords are greedy. Landlords should be putting the rents up. Landlords should you know should have to cap rents. Landlords should have to do this. Landlords should have to do that. And you know, that's not solving the problem, is it? Well, uh, I think tackle one thing at a time. If we're looking at is there a valid criticism for how much rents have been rising, um, I just did a quick analysis and I found that, you know, give or take, um, the average was about, the average rental market rose about 2 to 3% above CPI. So CPI was what? I think it was 7.8%. For the twelve months, just I just quickly did a search on it earlier. The average rent rent increase was give or take around ten percent. So there is a gap there. So is that criticism valid? Yes, that you know that that gap between yeah, but the gap isn't the gap. The gap isn't about greed. The gap is that's about market forces and about Correct. supply and demand mm-hmm. and the fact that you know that rents are going up because there's a shortage of, of stock. Yeah, but um, you know, if you if you wanted to tackle that, then you just tackle that issue. You wouldn't put a a, 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 a an arbitrary rent cap on it. You'd peg it to CPI, for example. You just say you can't raise it above a certain threshold above CPI with some tolerances. Um, and you know, if, you, if that tolerance is 1%, then the gap really hasn't been, you haven't really stretched above that gap that much. Um, so that would be that would be my call out on that, that, you know, that these rent caps have a risk though. We don't want to scare people out because the, it's got to be a multifaceted approach to this. We, you know, my numbers are pretty simple. New housing stock times rental tenure equals the percentage that's going to become a, a rental property. Now, 
usually um, uh, if, if you're building units, a higher proportion of units become rentals. So if you look at the areas there, you know, causation, correlation, I get that. But in most cases, a, a medium high density um, build is going to end up a much higher proportion of rentals. So that's a good thing. But you can build all sorts of incentives around that as well and focus on infill areas, get government incentives in there, get tax incentives, and get the government active in building a lot more. I mean, the government's front and centre should be building a lot of public housing. I was wondering how bad this would have been, though, if, if Labor did win, you know, the 2019 election, right, and negative gearing up was unwound, um, and capital gains tax exemption was increased. You know, you would have absolutely seen investor lending drop, right? Because, um, you know, it's not as enticing to, you can't, especially as interest rates went up, you know, you'd have all these people who would not be able to claim all their negative gearing, right? Uh, and, and investors would go, well, I don't want to go into property, the capital gains isn't as... So, you know, and that's what, it's already starting to come back in the papers a little bit. Um, obviously, Labor in the market, you know, Liberal and ABC, they'll use it as a policy, et cetera. And it's still one of the things that people call on is that, oh, we've got a housing crisis, let's get rid of negative gearing and let's increase capital gains tax. But what we're saying is we actually need to increase investors in the market to provide more rental housing to help us solve our rental crisis. Um, and that goes in the face of housing unaffordability, right? So, yeah. I think it needs to be, it can't just be one solution. We need this, it's it needs to be multifaceted. So we don't want to lose uh, in private investors. We, we want those, but we need a, a massive surge in affordable housing. And, you know, investors aren't incentivized to actually have a cheap rental right now. Whereas in America, they are. So that, you know, that would be part of the program. So, it's also the planning, though, isn't it? I mean, the problem is that lots of supply needs to come into the market. It takes time. It takes, what, two to four years to get a new development off the ground and finished. Um, in that time, you've got to find builders, you've got to find materials, you've got to find buyers, you've got to find, you know, you've got to, uh, there's a lot to be done. Um, in the meantime, building this and Hearts and we're actually incentivizing people to rent out their spare room, um, you're trying to find those one million vacant properties in the country and think, are they really vacant or not? And if they are, then disincentivize people to leave them vacant. Um, so, that the, you know, there are some things that you can move the needle potentially straight away because the fact is that building is going to take time and we have a, a resource shortage. So capacity shortage, you know, in terms of actually building it. So we've got to look at these shorter term um, solutions that you're coming up with, Kent. And, you know, obviously the tax things, well... I think that that's interesting too, that, that it, 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 it's, it's actually self-fulfilling in that the incentive for somebody to take their property off the long-term rental market and make it a short-term Airbnb, once it gets to below half a percent vacancy rate, they realise that, wow, I can charge 700 bucks a night for my fairly average condition property in, in Upper Hunter Valley. That's what's happened. That's what that's Musselbrook is. Is this example of it? Is you know my cousin just moved into a property while they're getting theirs repaired, and it's seven hundred dollars per night as an Airbnb. And cool. It, yes. So you can you, the the returns are phenomenal, but that's because there's nothing else available. So the insurer could only place them in an Airbnb for a few weeks while this repair works underway. So that that's the other problem. Now, and look, I've got to be I've got to be careful here because you know I've got an opinion, but I I also recognise that my opinion is probably not based on fact and definitely not based on data, you know, verifiable data. And we potentially we need to interview somebody on this because I guess we need to get some hard hard information around how much of the sh the longer term rental stock has morphed into short-term rental. Um, there's that old argument that people are entitled to obviously maximise the return on their investments, yes. Um, but at the same time, that is getting into that sort of greedy fat cat territory, I guess, isn't it? When you really take it away from the long-term market um, because you are able to maximise on those sh short-term gains. Um, so it's sticky territory, but and there also are limits to how many, in uh, Airbnb or New South Wales anyway, there's limits to how many nights a property can be made available for Airbnb. So even if, you know, you've you got, what, 50% vacancy, uh, well, however it works, you know, you can only occupy it 
or offer it to the short-term rental market. I think it's for 50% of the time, I think. Don't quote me on that because I can't remember the exact legislation. But say it's half the time and say you're charging way more than twice the rent and your costs are, are higher as well. But if you are well in excess on the rental income on that, then people are going to do that, right? So talk about incentives because that's what people do. You know, follow the incentives, follow the money, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Um, and that the rental crisis itself is actually creating a ripe scenario. For, so it's almost like it's um, self-fulfilling in a way. Do you know what I mean? If you've got a shortage of rentals, then you're gonna you're gonna desperate people will desperately pay if they can afford it to to take something short term. That pushes the demand up for that. You know what I mean? Like That's so, this is point. sort of all feeding yeah. into the same problem, right? Yep. Yeah, yeah it makes sense, the, right? Um, yeah. Uh, I, I thought I wanted to. <clears throat> I wanted to gravitate back to these other incentives, uh, the the um, the chat GPT output. So we had tax incentives to cover that. What I also said is grants and subsidies, and it looked at you know, different investment partnership programs, uh, community development grants, uh, and affordable housing trust funds. Now it seems very similar to what's already happening with these community housing groups, but yeah, you know, these these guys have been starved for supply, so they've they've got these brilliant frameworks. I've met, I met quite a few of them over the years. They've got the systems in place, but they need to be, they need to have triple the output of what they've been up to. There's just not enough there. Um, and then th there's a couple of extra things here. There's zoning and land use incentives. So uh, one of the things that mentioned is inclusionary zoning, density bonuses, and reduced parking requirements. So there's a couple of things there. Um, uh, ex expedited permitting and reduced fee. So streamlining the permit process. You know, we're a bit slow on that front. Um, PPPs, private partnerships, private public partnerships, loan guarantees and financing programs. So that was some of the things it spat out as, yeah, and it was it was a really well-written re re report, research article, done in all of two minutes flat out of, out of chat Seconds. GPT. It was just amazing. And I'm thinking, you know what? It, it's not a lack of knowledge or know-how. What is it? Why, you know, you can find... The pathway the will, forward, clearly. <laughs> yeah, you can go click, mm. and there you go. There's your there's your framework. What's going on? Well, I was just literally watching something that you sent to me, Kent, about our federal parliament. So we're recording this in the beginning of April. We won't go to air till May, um, but federal parliament uh, at a bit of a stalemate because the Labor government can't get through um, housing policy. It's going to bring in, I think, something like twenty thousand new dwellings, which is like a drop in the bucket anyway. And, you know, the Libs are getting in the way of voting for that. I think the Greens have got something to do with getting in the way of that too. I don't quite understand. But, you know, at the end of the day, we've got, we've got political problems. You know, we've got, it, it's not, we're not getting bipartisan uh, support to actually solve the problem. And, you know, I, I, what do you do? <laughs> yeah, well, it shouldn't be. This should not be political. It should be bipartisan. Because it's going to bite. It shouldn't be. It's going to bite every politician on the backside because it'll happen not in their term. The problems will compound and pass over to the next term, which will probably be your term. So make it bipartisan now. Well, they're happening now. I, I was actually on LinkedIn and I discovered that New Zealand's got exactly the same issues. I, I was reading this this feed and and I was like, oh, it's not even in Australia. This is actually in New Zealand. And then I commented, and they were and the people behind that were like, oh, are you having the same problem? <laughs> yes, we are. Yes, we are. <laughs> very similar causes, very similar causes. It's phenomenal. And but the thing is, there's a lot of talk about it, but is anything actually happening? Not at a scale. Not at scale. And that's the problem. While well, we're opening up the gate, you're aiming getting a well and truly above one percent population growth, whilst our pipe pipeline supply is well and truly below one percent. So the gap gets worse while you're opening the gates up there. And I, I think there's another there's another fundamental problem here is where where we live is a big part of it. If if you look at the geography uh, of of Sydney as an example, what an awful place to keep growing because you've got waterways everywhere. Yeah, you know, we're building along this coastline, and that made sense when we used the the sea as 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 our freeway. Um, but really, we should have migrated inland quite some time ago. You know, Albury, freshwater supply areas that you can build. We need cities like that. We need another two or three or four Canberras. And Albury's a great example of one that should be a Canberra right now. So that's, I think, that they're some of the big issues. Even picking on Canberra, Canberra's constrained now. It's 
pushed right out to its boundaries and needs to acquire extra land from New South Wales. That's crazy. You know, if you look at it and you say, this makes no sense, that line is a man-made line. Pardon, I didn't mean to be sexist there, but you know what I mean? This is, we, we do some really crazy stuff. So, yeah, yes, we built the city in the right place, but we put some some really artificial, silly constraints on where you can build and whatnot. But places like Albury should be Oh, we can build we up. Build up, that's that's fine. But so we can, correct. Yeah, but you've got to zone it straight up. You've got to, you've got to zone it from the outset for medium high density, you know, and, and, and to try and do it through infill um, and then change zoning and upset neighbours and nimbyism, it's just, it's not on. Pick on Newcastle, pardon that, pardon that. There's some someone at the door, dog barking. So, yeah, I, I think you've just, we're trying to do all these little infill things and, you know, I think China got it right. You know, China build, builds a train track into a city like Xi'an and the train track's all underneath and they build out the city and then they move the people in. They do it the right way. You know, they're, they're, there's the answer. I think one of the problems with the, the whole rental affordable cost is you need investors to come back. And I've just brought up some stats from AFG, which are and I'm one of the big mortgage aggregators. They've got a very good report called the AFG Index and they, re- they released it quarterly. And what's good about it is it has like a, you know, the history of lending lodgements, right? And the percentage that went to investors and, and how much was actually lent per month, et cetera. Um, and all the way from 2013, 2018, well, 2017, let's call it, investment lending was like 35 to 40% of total lending, right? So it was a big portion of the lending. And then when you go to sort of like 2017- In what period was that, Chris? 2013 so, to 2017. Was that? that was a one year. Four years, um, 2013 to 2017, it was just really strong, right? 35 to 40% of new lending, right? And um, But as soon as you get to sort of 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020, it starts to drop and it's almost in the, the average is like 21, 23, 25. Um, and it's sort of jumped up to maybe 27 now. But it's, you know, that extra 10% is huge, right? Um, yes, first home buyers have increased a bit. You know, they've gone up maybe a few percent. But, you know, that, that investors pulling out of the market um, is really what's causing the rental issues now, right? Um, because less and less percentage of the new it's properties- crowding are, out. It, yeah. it, they've probably been crowded out. You know, first home buyer incentives have effectively crowded out that proportion of the market that would otherwise be there. Well, also lending um, restrictions, that's really what triggered it back in sort of 2015-16, right? Um, and then- you know, obviously, now the interest rates are rising. It's more expensive. You've got less borrowing. I mean, you know, you less got borrowing capacity, et cetera, et cetera. And there's also, um, you know, with booms, investors tend to be last to the party as well. I, don't, I mean, 2021 was a very short boom. So I don't think investors really got time to, to jump on before everything slowed down in 2022. You know, so this is sort of interesting. But I think, too, um, you know, when you look at our situation, it it, it doesn't, seem to be able to improve in the short term so in a human sense where are these people living i mean you sort of see every now and then the news got you know one person they've got this story about what they're doing but you know at the end of the day these are a lot of people that are having to find alternative accommodation i i don't know if there's i'm asking this i don't know if we've got the answer in this podcast today but i mean Who's tracking what they're doing and where they're going and where they're living? Yeah, the ABS are tracking homelessness, though. Yeah, so there is a, some data set which I should have I, you know, I should have grabbed it before this. So I apologise for that. Um, but there is homeless. Uh, there is a homeless data set from the ABS, and I think it's interesting though. What what homelessness? So what's the definition of homelessness? Well, it could be. I think I think it's um yeah anyone who isn't on title or isn't on a, on you know, on a lease. So if you're if you're lounge surfing or couch surfing you're homeless um so i think that's the broad definition so i think there's going to be a lot of people classified if you're living with your parents well i'm not not gone home to live with your parents on that so yeah so i should have done my homework that would have been a a a valid point um so i'm not i'm not really up to speed on the clear definition of homelessness we should all be (laughs) it should be because we we Got a situation we've got, you know, immigration's on the rise and obviously lots more students coming back into the country and all the rest of it. I know that, I know that there is dedicated student accommodation that isn't necessarily part of this story. Um, I'm not sure 
what percentage of students are or overseas students are accommodated in such accommodation. Um, so I'm sort of talking out my hat here. But, you know, our government, oh, we've got a labour shortage, so we need people, and this is the irony, that we, we need to actually import people to build the housing for the more, for the new people important to the country you know what i mean it's sort of he's a bit insane in well, many I ways just, i keep on looking at what's happening overseas and that there, there, there's so much more happening with prefab there's so much more happening with 3d printing um you know they're setting up the machine and the machine can work 24 hours laying down the composite you know the equivalent of a concrete wall um and and this seems to be going ahead in leaps and bounds in the uk and the u.s and it's like I'm, I'm watching a couple of companies in Australia that seem to be doing some interesting things, but it doesn't seem to be getting anywhere near the traction or attention or, or investment that I think it, it needs to move, truly move the dial. Um, but it seems like you know, America, for all its faults, is really doubling down on this. You know, affordable housing produced in a factory, shipped out, building a whole estate in one third the time it takes us to do it. I wonder if this is also going to play into a, a lower number of people downsizing, right? Because it makes sense if you, you know, you're you're in your sort of um, maybe in your fifties slash sixties, and your kids have sort of gone through uni, but now they can't have any issues with rental accommodation or they can't get their first home. Um, they're not unlikely; they're more likely to want to come back to the home, right? And so, you know, the, the person might have said, "Well, I'm going to downsize from my house and buy an apartment." The kids have sort of grown up now; I don't need the space. But maybe they're like, "Well." We need to have that option there just in case the kids need to move back home. I wonder if, you know, the parents are going to start to burden a lot of this rental stress because they know how difficult it is for the kids to A, afford the rent, but B, actually even get a place to rent. Well, that's what I think, Chris. We won't see it in until the next um, census. So we're, you know, what, another three, four years off from seeing it. But I think the variable of interest will be a person's per dwelling. So that's the only thing that seems to be able to to move to res to resolve this. But the yeah, so the RBA released some research that showed that the composition of of um, dwellings was changing, right? So there's less people per dwelling, and obviously with work from home and the whole rest of it, there's more. Everybody wants more space in their dwellings, so therefore, the same amount of dwellings is not going as far as it used to. So that's another contributing factor to this as well. And I guess we're all affluent enough to be able to afford to live in places that are technically too big for us, or perhaps. <laughs> Maybe that's... Yeah, yeah. The McMansion thing was big, wasn't it? <laughs> mm. Yeah. But even with, with lockdowns and working from home and even this continued sort of work-from-home hybrid model, then, you know, the very first, I think we interviewed... Um, God, was it Alice Stoltz from Domain very early on in, in the first lockdown from Domain and she was saying that, that the term, you know, home office went up something like 800% at the time uh, in the search terms. And um, I, you know, from I remember some period later talking to her about that and I don't think it had gone down. I think that, and even now when we talk to clients, you know, what they're looking for and they need that space for that home office. I mean, that one extra room, for instance, probably takes a bedroom out of each dwelling or a, per a person out of each dwelling. So, you know, this is sort of our way in which we live now is this is the knock-on effect of changing, you know, these sort of more more structural changes, I guess, um, as a result of the pandemic, you know. And I know I talk about this a lot, that some things have changed forever and trying to work out what has and what, ha what hasn't. But this does seem to be playing into this problem. So a short-term solution is send everybody back to the office. <laughs> but it's it's interesting how it's impacting the data sets that I normally have been playing with for these years is that the rental market is so strong that it's it's effectively um, overplaying a lot of the metrics that would otherwise build a scorecard for an area. So so what I mean by that is if if you're if you're building scorecards or looking at a spreadsheet to determine where should I look to invest. What's happening in the rental market is really starting to jump into and play with a lot of these models in a much bigger way than ever has before. So your yields, for example, it's opening up um, uh, suburbs that you may not have looked at over the last 10 years or more because it, they didn't have those types of yields in the past, um, you know, or, or, or property types, et cetera. So, yeah, there's a lot of people now starting to explore investment 
areas that you would you wouldn't traditionally classify as an investment area. So that's a little dangerous, right? I that's mean, it could be that it, yeah. oh, this is a permanent. So oh, this is a permanent change, and and these areas from henceforth are going to be great places to to invest. Or this for the unwary who don't realise because they haven't been around long enough won't get that this is actually an anomaly. And we love talking about anomalies with you. This is an anomaly brought about by unusual circumstances, which in the big scheme of things won't last forever. That's my point. So the metric of interest is the affordability. And it it's effectively looks at rents and the proportion of household income being allocated to rent. So what we're finding is a lot of areas that have had a huge surge in rent have disconnected significantly from local income. And what we've learned from, say, the housing market, we're picking on we're picking on the Richmond Tweed Coastal, or we're picking on the South Coast, for example. Remember, we were talking in this last podcast where they became dependent upon Sydney money to prop up these very, very I'll, I'll use air quotes, you know, artificially high prices. Similar scenario that I'm calling here. My theory is that you've got prices being propped up in a similar way by people saying, look, let's just, doesn't matter. Let, it's only going to be, let's just, we need a house. Let's spend 40%. Let's just spend 40%. The question I have is, is spending 40%. Or well, let's just move to that area for as long as this lasts for. Yeah. And so what I'm saying is, is it sustainable? And I don't, I would argue that you get up above 40% of household income being spent on rents in a given area. I'm going to throw out the argument that that's not sustainable. If you are investing in an area chasing yield and you're looking at the numbers without paying, giving respect to affordability, you might be taking a bit of risk. So if you're in a market where um, suddenly as a percentage of household income, rents are getting up above 35, 40% or higher, my theory is that that's not going to be sustainable and that could come back closer to that 30% mark. So those excessively high rents, what, how do you measure an excessively high rent? The only thing I've got to measure it against is household income. So the areas where rents start to get up to that 35 40% or higher, I'm going to throw the argument down that that won't be sustainable. So if you're investing without paying respect to that affordability metric, I believe you're taking a risk. I love that, Kent, because the problem is there's, you know, the yield is so attractive. It's very compelling, isn't it? When you see that going up and you think, oh, and, and yet we hear it spruiked, you know, across the board. So, you know, introducing that affordability metric is a really pragmatic way of testing whether that yield is Fills gold, I guess. Exactly. And the flip side of that is looking at the areas that are best for a build to rent who's aiming for that top end of town. You'd focus on areas like your Bondi's or you focus on Paddington or, or Melbourne East. So I did a report of a, you know, the top 10 build to rent locations and I used the opposite of that. I looked for the areas that I ranked them on the areas that were spending the lowest percentage of household income on rents. And, you know, the best ones had, you know, 23, 24%. Uh, yet they still had low vacancy rates, et cetera. And what was the driver? The driver was high income. Interesting. And also with those built to rent, I mean, if, if you know, they are targeting that higher end of the market, they're going to be brand new properties for starters, you know, certainly, certainly off at the beginning. Um, and they are going for a sort of a higher end of the market. You would assume they're going to take some of the tenants out of existing stock that might free up exactly some of the existing stock for um, other, and that will put downward pressure, of course, on rents in those other areas. It's all supply. Supply at the top, supply at the middle, supply at the bottom end. So I kind of divide it into three. Build the rent coming in at the top. Um, in the middle market, uh, your Mara Par investors, you know, we need them in the middle. And then we've got government, ideally government and community housing groups coming in at the bottom. So that, you know, that multifaceted approach. But what we should probably be doing is focusing on that middle by adopting some of those policies that are used in the US, offering a much broader array of incentives for multifamily or sorry, build to rent to make them affordable. And I think we're missing that bit. Yeah, I think what I'll probably do is try to get someone on from flatmates or, you know, Five A finders, 
um, to basically see if we are seeing an increase in people trying to rent out rooms and come and join housing. I think that would be interesting to get some data on the ground and maybe even get Kieran from Made Comfrey on the Airbnb front. I mean, it's been a couple of years almost now since they changed all the rules in New South Wales around a, a day limit and has that, or uh, you know, that story you're talking about in Musselbrook, you know, is that starting to really increase? Is the, the rental stress leading to higher Airbnb prices, not so much, you know, tourism and, and the 180 day cap, et cetera. So maybe that's part of the solution is actually allowing that cap to, to you know, extend, you know, because uh, if they're going to do it, you might as well let them, rented out the whole year rather than forcing him under this cap. So, Well, actually, you can, from memory, you can rent days. it out, say, yeah. for three months or 21 days. Or is it three weeks, three months, whatever? Anyway, for for a month, for instance, and it does not include it in your 180 days. So there are ways that they could have it um, occupied all year long, which is... A mix. Um, mm. It's just, you know, we love these philosophical chats here. We love to sort of get into the data and, and the nuance of it and rather than just the, the headline variety um, and particularly appreciate your insights, Kent, as well. We love these chats. But I guess from a practical sense as well in terms of our listeners, um, you know, we're guessing you quite like these chats too, otherwise you wouldn't be tuned in. But, you know, we're just all, always at pains to, you know, there's going to be some temptation to invest poorly I think in the next few years, you know, there's going to be lots of property to invest in. There's going to be a lot of talk about high yield. There's going to be, you know, um, uh, obviously, you know, easy to rent out properties. And so I just, I guess we need to be much more discerning in terms of our individual investment decisions, not to get sort of swept along with the tide of this. Um, And yes, we want to help solve the problem, but, you know, if we're individual investors, we've obviously got to worry about our own financial future, which is why we were investing in the first place. But um, it's, I think, always good to understand what's happening in the macro level, you know, when we make our own micro decisions, which for us are macro. They're macro in terms of our own life, but they're micro in terms of the whole scheme of things. Um, and these big movements can sometimes create opportunities, but we've got to be careful. We, 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 we're making one bet per purchase whenever we buy a property you know we're deciding on our thesis and what we're going to invest in and we're gambling on that effectively so we've got to be very careful and i think there's going to be a lot of sort of arrows pointing in directions that perhaps might be tempting people to invest maybe unwisely so we've got to be extra discerning is my thoughts on this if you have a question that you'd like us to answer in an upcoming Q&A episode, you can send us a voicemail or written question via the website, theelephantintheroom.com.au, or you can email us directly at questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. If you like what you're hearing, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars would be great. I know that sounds a bit cringy, but we have it on good authority that every review helps make it easier for other people to find out about us and hear what our amazing guests have to say.